Electricast. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 81 of the Burden and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Brian. Today's guest comes to me from my friends over at Interview Connections, and her name is Mia Hewitt. Mia is a master business coach who heals trauma. She has co-owned and operated seven-figure businesses, is an international speaker, and a world-class business coach. Mia is the founder of Aligned Intelligence, a methodology that removes all blind spots, fear, anxiety, and self-doubt, leaving you feeling, quote, free to be me, end quote. This method allows her clients to stop secretly struggling and live in alignment with their dreams so that they can scale to a six and seven figure income the fast way. Mia has helped hundreds of entrepreneurs who have always known they were meant for more, and she is sharing all her secrets in her new book of the same title, Meant for More. This is a book that explains how to stop struggling, awaken your full potential, and discover the truth about who you really are. Mia is also a contributor uh, on Thrive Global and has been featured in The Huffington Post, Forbes, and BYL Money Channel. Now, this was an outstanding discussion with Mia, and she's got a lot of good information to share uh, about uh, overcoming those fears and where those fears come from. And most importantly, something a lot of people struggle with, imposter syndrome. So with that, I'm going to get out of your way. I don't want to keep you from this great interview. Getting out of your way right now and letting you get into this outstanding discussion with Mia Hewitt. All right, Mia, thanks for uh, joining me and my guests this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, be fun. yeah, no, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, but before we do a deep dive into uh, why people are meant for more, uh, I want to start you off where I start everybody with that uh, kind of foundational question for the podcast. Mm. What does the phrase burden of command mean for you? Hmm. Well, since I've built two million dollar companies and one I did it from complete burden. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That really resonates with me. And the other one, um, my most recent one, I did it from complete flow and ease. I really know the contrast and the difference between the two. So I would say burden of command to me, it feels like, I'm going to say it this way. It feels like when I felt when I first started out in business, where there was a big part of me that really wanted to play big and be seen, but another, uh, an emotional side of myself that didn't really want to be seen. And the burden to me felt like I felt like I was constantly being caught between those two fragmented pieces of myself. And Mm -hmm. so that's what it felt like to me. Like I felt like I, a part of me was like, I really need to do this. I know that I'm meant for so much more, but shit, this is really feels terrible. And I feel like this is a burden. And like, why do I have to do this? And why can't I do it right? And isn't there, there must be an easier way. And, um, what's wrong with me? Why don't I ever like know the way, the right way to do it? And like, (laughs) I felt constantly conflicted. I used to feel conflicted between those two parts of myself. 
Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, it is, it's a lot of knowing yourself and who you are. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems like, you know, that's, that's a lot of what your work today is really centered around is help people yes. really figuring out the answer to that question, who you really are and what you're meant to do. That's exactly right. Because where it switched for me, where the light bulbs came on and all the dots started to connect is when I could really see how I became who I was. And I would ask anyone listening to consider that if you're struggling, consider that who you think you are is not who you are, Mm. but who you became as a way to survive the first original trauma you had. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's deep. That's, that's a good question there. And it's, I, 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 you know, I think you hit on it. It's something we all struggle with. I mean, you know, it's something that, that plagues me even to this day. Uh, you know, I mean, I've shared this story with my listeners on here before. Uh, you know, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, dirt floor Mm -hmm. poor. Uh, you know, joining the Marine Corps for me was a way to get out and get, uh, kind of a pathway to something better. Yes. But even with all the skills and all the stuff that I have right now, there's still a part of me that's kind of stuck in that dirt floor, poor, yes. uh, struggling mentality. Yes, I was right with you. I grew up poor myself, and so I was right with you. So when I was five years old, I remember playing in my room, and I heard my father calling me, and I could tell by the sound of his voice, you know, he meant business. He had that one voice where it was like, of all the people that I was afraid of in my house, my father was definitely the one that scared me the most, because he always felt um, like he like I had to walk around on eggshells, like a ticking Tom bomb. Like one moment he'd be the most happiest, gregarious person. And the next moment he, something would set him off. And then something really bad was going to happen. Somebody's going to get the bell. Somebody's going to get their, their mouth washed out with soap. Somebody's going to have something really ugly happen to them. And so it was that constant feeling like I was on eggshells. And so I remember this day, um, him saying, you know, I'm, I was like, why, but why do you want to go outside with me? And he was like, you know, I want us to spend time together. And I remember thinking, that's really weird because like, I'm not his favorite. My older sister was the favorite. She was the boy he never had. Um, and I was the scared one, right? The one that was like, not really like the brave one or anything like that. And I was like, okay. And so I remember going outside with him and he said to me, you know, which one of these chickens is your favorite? And I was like, oh, you know, well, that's easy. It's that one because there was this one that I absolutely adored. She was my absolute favorite. Anytime I went outside, she always wanted to know what I was doing. Um, and I would like find her worms and stuff. Anyway, um, I remember saying that and I remember him say just as plain as day, well, then that's the one we're going to kill today. Mm. And I remember like getting really confused. My mind starts spinning. I'm like not understanding what's happening. I remember thinking like someone's screaming. Oh yes, I realize it's me. And I'm like, I'm screaming. I've done something horrible. This is all my fault. I froze and my mind goes blank. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, life as I knew it changed forever. You see, that day I decided that people don't really mean what they say. You can't really trust anyone, not even your own father. And the world, well, it's not a happy place. It's actually 
um, a very scary place. And so that day at five years old, I vowed that I would never have that happen to me again. So I built these walls around myself and I didn't even remember doing this. This is unconscious to me. Um, but I built these walls around myself for years and even decades. And I just didn't know back then that the walls that I was building to protect myself would become my greatest limitations for myself and my business. Mm. At, at five years old, that, that foundation uh, kind of pinning you in for the rest of your life was pretty much already set in stone, huh? That's exactly, that, that, that's why when my first come and I was doing it completely from survival because I didn't realize that what was the part of me that was struggling was still five years old not trusting anyone, not like really feeling safe. So even though logically I knew what to do, I mean, there's Google, right? Like right, right. <laughs> it's not that we need more information for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that um, I didn't, so I knew what to do, but I just didn't feel that I could do it. And it was that constant struggle. And so what happened was I went, you know, once, you know, I made it, I did, I made a built a million dollar company, the first one. And I couldn't understand how it was that I could be so successful on the outside, but still feel completely inadequate on the inside. I thought that once I had made a million dollars because I grew up poor, I thought I would arrive and there would be this like, ah, you know? <laughs> the, the red carpet and the champagne. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you know, like that, like not that I'm better than anyone, but more that inside of myself, I would feel like pride and you did it and fulfilled and like, you know, a sense of accomplishment and a feeling of like, you know, joy and um, I'm enough and, I didn't feel any of those things. I kind of felt like, why do I still feel so awkward? Like I couldn't talk in front of, like I'd still like certain people would trigger me. Like anyone that resembled my father, like if I got clients who were domineering or really like anything like that, I would literally wall up, freeze, become completely the dumbest person in the room. My brain would stop working. I'd go into a frozen state, the same like my trauma, but I didn't associate it that it was my trauma. I just, I mean, I had been struggling that since my whole life. So I didn't, I forgot that it was that experience and how I created it all. So I didn't even know that I, how to heal it. And I went and I spent like a half a million dollars and I've worked with the best in the best and, you know, to try to figure out what was wrong with me. And nobody could, nobody could tell me what it was. I went to years of therapy. Um, you know, all that did was just keep talking about it, but like we never, it didn't resolve anything. And so I've just became obsessed. The, the, the kind of the, straw that broke the camel's back was I paid a gentleman, very famous, $50,000 to coach me to, to, because, you know, he said he could help me with that struggle to stop struggling. And I remember I'm very coachable. I did everything he said. Um, and I didn't feel any different. And I was really from genuine innocence. I was saying, you know, like, what do you think is I'm missing? Like, what, why do you think this isn't working for me? And we were about like six months in and he, he said, you know, he was fed up with me and he said, Mia, you just need to go to your room and lock the door and not come out until you figure this out. 
Mm. Well, you know, this is when the ghetto side of me com- comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I was like, I didn't need to pay you no fifty thousand dollars. You know, like I was just pissed. I was pissed. I was really, really pissed. And um, just to see the difference, like back then, something like that, when that would happen to me, that would take me out for a week. Like I would loop in that conversation and replay that conversation over and over and over and over again. Now in the days of my life, because now I understand it all. So I became on a, I got on a rampage of like, I was determined to figure this out because I could not imagine that I could be the only person that struggles with this because I'm not that special. Like there had to be other people that Mm -hmm. struggle like me. And so I just, it took me six years. I'm not an overnight success. It took me what I teach people how to overcome and live in eight weeks. It took me six years to uncover. So I'm, I'm not at all, um, <laughs> saying I, you know, had like an epiphany of any kind. It was, it literally took me to unraveling all these little components. But here's what I found. This is going to kind of sum it up. So everybody who, who, anyone who feels like this, I'm going to show you exactly what's really happening. And, um, these are the pieces I wish somebody would have told me a long, long time ago. But basically, here's what it is. Um, and let me preface this with this. Prior to the age of seven, you, we don't have a conscious mind. We only have a subconscious mind, a feeling mind. So that means that, um, when we're born as babies, not one baby is born with a self-esteem issue. Not mm-hmm. one. Every one of us felt whole, perfect, and complete. There was a harmony within us and we trusted ourselves, we trusted others, and we trusted life. We thought the whole world was for us. Right. Every, right? Can you remember that? Like it's small, but can you remember feeling like everything was for you? You woke up and you thought like it was an adventure. Everything was a new thing to explore and we could be anyone and do anything. And we were the world and the world was us and it was all one. And then something happened and it happens really young. So that's why the therapists miss it. They keep thinking it's like these later events, but it's the very first one. It will happen. It's usually often around two or three. Mine's a little older, but most often I see the majority of two and three, maybe four year olds. Right. And so what happens is we go into an, we were this whole perfect being and we go into an experience And where we would normally go all the way through the experience and just feel complete like ourselves all the time, something happened in that experience that shocked us, scared us, blindsided us, like where we didn't even know that that could happen. Like the world was our oyster. And then that day it was like, or that experience, it was like, what do you mean it's not? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, and it can be, it doesn't even have to happen to us. It can be something we witnessed. I had a, a client who, um, witnessed, um, their, her dad, um, losing it with her older sister and the older sister, um, he ended up hitting her so hard. She hit the radiator and cracked her skull. Like she was bleeding. So it doesn't even have to be us directly. We could witness it, right? But in that moment of that experience, whether it's happening to us or we're just experiencing, and it doesn't even have to be that traumatic, um, meaning what society thinks is traumatic. It could be, I had one gentleman where his was when he was four years old, he had, um, 
gone to, to preschool, come home from preschool. And he was so excited and he goes, daddy, 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 look, I colored inside the lines. And his dad looked at the piece of paper and he said, huh, well, I guess you don't have much of an imagination. Now that's all he said. So mm. it doesn't have to be bigger than that because that little boy, it was so traumatizing to him because the whole world had always looked for him and he thought he was perfect. And in that moment, he made what his dad say a decision about himself. He didn't even know what an imagination was, but he, he heard it like, I'm, oh, there's something wrong with me. Like, before this, I thought everything was perfect, but now I see that there's really something wrong with me. Now he didn't know what it was. So he went on the look, like the look on, look out for that day forward of trying to find something outside of him that would make him feel enough again or be lovable or be good enough or do it right or something of that nature. So do you see, it doesn't have to be anything like um, society thinks it has to be something huge, but it can be something that may feel insignificant to you in the todays of your life. But back then, it was a big deal. And so what happens then from in that moment of that experience where we would have normally gone through it and felt complete wholeness again, like always, we got stopped and we pulled back inward inside of ourselves. there's this, this is going to be too strong of a word, but there's this feeling of separation where we feel all alone, like we're different, like other people are this way, but we're this way. And in that moment of separation or pullback, we created our ego. Mm. And that's our false self, right? That identity of whoever we took on. Some people took on being the rebel. Some people took on, I got to be the class clown in order to be good enough or likes. So, um, I took on the people pleasing. My sister already had the rebel. <laughs> <laughs> that role was taken. She would have huh? beat the shit out of me if I had gone under the rebel one. Like, you know, you can't have two rebels right next right. to each other. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, so yeah, like I, I took on the people pleasing, the good girl. I just got to get it right. I got to just do it right. As long as I do it right, then I'm okay. Right. Yeah. And so my biggest thing that used to stop me is the fear of doing it wrong. Mm. Right. And so that, of course, that's going to do that. But I didn't know that this is all healable. I didn't know that all that stuff that was stopping me and that two sides of myself um, inside of feeling split. I didn't know that when we healed that back then, we could come back into wholeness. Yeah. And that we could actually come back to who we were prior to the experience. And so now from this way of being, I no longer feel like I have to protect myself. I no longer have any limitations. Um, I don't just, you know, hope I hit my numbers. I know I'm going to hit my numbers because I know exactly how to create the results that I want. Um, I know how to take a number that I've never hit before and quantum leap it reverse engineer it, go back into now, then break it down into the smallest denominator of like, what would that look like per month, right? Of what am I going to need to do? Then how am I going to scale that? What systems, processes, and team members am I going to have to additional resources I'm going to put in place that's going to allow me to scale that number? Then I get really highly intentional and committed, but without any attachment to exactly how it needs to look 
So I'm flexible inside of like whatever needs to happen to make that number happen. I'm not attached to who is the ones that come work with me or not. I just do, I just focus on the activity and reward and praise myself for the activity. And I always hit my numbers. Mm. No, I, I love, I mean, you said a lot there and I loved every bit of it because, you know, as you're, you're sharing your story, I'm sitting back thinking like, you know, what is, what was mine? What, what was, was yours? Thing? Yeah. yeah. And, and I can, you know, as, like, as soon as I asked the question, like vividly, yeah, I, I remember like, you know, I was probably five or six yeah, and, and like you said, I'm, I'm, you know, fat, dumb and happy. I'm used to running around and playing with, uh, you know, friends yes. and all that. And my buddy at the time, real good friends, Josh Rubel. Josh, if you yeah. hear this, I love you, brother. But <laughs> I, I, I saw him ride his bike over yeah. his house, and I just yeah. I, I went to him, and we went to his mm-hmm. house to play, mm-hmm. and I was, I don't know, not even a half a mile away from home. And apparently, uh, my grandparents actually ended up raising me. My, my grandmother was freaking out. She had no clue where I went. Yeah, and you know, for point of reference, if people you know remember this, this was, um, this was right when the TV movie of the Adam Walsh story had come out. So I want to say this like yes. eighty four, eighty five. Yep. And so parents across the country were freaked out over what had happened to Adam Walsh. Yep. And she's got, <coughs> excuse me, she's got all this stuff running through her head, and I come home, I'm just as happy as can be, yes. and she's like. Where were you? What were you doing? Never yes. run away like that again. Oh, my. Like, I'm like, what did I do? Yes. You know? Yes. Now go there right there because you're hitting on it. This is beautiful. And this is going to show you a lot right here. Ask yourself that that little boy, when you were that age, what did you make it mean about you? You internalized it to mean something. Ask, your, ask yourself that. What did I make it mean about me? Yeah, I, that's a good question. And, and you know, it was I, like, you know, my initial reaction was, you know, like I said, what did, what did I do wrong? Oh, my God. You know, I've never seen my grandmother mm-hmm. act this way. What what did mm-hmm. I do? Yep. And, you know, she kind of, you know, then she sat down and she had the, you know, look, this is what could happen to you. And that freaked me out even more because of course. The, the whole Adam Walsh thing was not a great story. It didn't have yeah. a good ending. He ended up being no, killed. I know. I know that story well. I grew, I was in Florida. I know the mall he was taken from in Pompano Beach. Um, I grew up there. So right. that I really understand the Adam Wall story. Yeah. Yes. Go. Yeah. You're, you're right on yeah. it. But this is when you ask those questions. Cause what happened during that time is we ask three questions. This happens very quickly is what I uncovered is really quickly. There's three questions that we ask to like that we tell ourselves in the meaning. We make it, we ask ourselves, like, um, let me say it this way. We made decisions about ourselves, other people, and the world. And those decisions that we made at that moment have be, became the programming or the paradigm of, you know, of, of our personalities, our attitudes, our beliefs, our perceptions, our memorized behaviors. Like it literally becomes the box or the glass ceiling that we live in until we free ourselves from that misconception. Yeah. See, the coolest thing is inside of this is, you know, I love that. Do you remember the movie Inception? Yes. yes. I love that movie, right? So the cool thing about Inception, and that's why I wrote about it in my book, is that in Inception is 
the the what the whole point was the most deadliest thing to man is not disease it's not all these things it's an idea that once gets planted into the mind that literally then takes hold and be, forms this entire identity right not realizing we're the one who created it mm. yeah it's true it's very true and 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 you know the thing is too is is you know you, people realize that and and learn how to kind of use that to their advantage and and steer you around a little bit right Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Because one of the things um, inside of that, like, so people either go one or two ways in their trauma. They either go into superiority ego, which is, um, you know, they're just really good at the act, right? Or they go in inferiority ego, which is where they're, you know, that part of ourselves where we want to hide and like we avoid. And so we either, you know, kind of, I'll show you kind of the rebel kind of superiority ego, or we go inferiority ego. Not, I'm not judging any of it. Neither one is really effective ultimately, because even the people who use superiority ego, they can make a lot of money, but they're on their fourth wife. I get them too. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Like, let's just be straight. They're just as miserable buying closed doors. Like I've, I've coached everybody from inferior and superiority ego and it doesn't, I'm not judging any of it. Like either one is just trying to be someone to survive their life. Right. Right. Because what happens to us when that happens is then your whole life, you're trying to avoid that ever happening to you again. That feeling of rejection or not doing it right or, um, you know, like that you can't do something or like, you know, not going to, you know, making a mistake or, you know, whatever that is for you. That's what eats people up. And it kills businesses because no matter what business you're in, um, a lot of people don't understand this, but I, I, um, because I've done business and I understand business like the back of my hand, I like to remind people that um, it doesn't matter what business you're in. The truth is we're all in the relationship game. The vehicle for which you like to play the game shows up as a lawyer or, um, you know, an insurance agent or a coach or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing, a dentist, a doctor. But the truth is, everybody's in the relationship game. But if you don't understand that, you keep thinking you're in the game of soccer, but really you're in the game of football. You don't understand why you keep hitting up against yourselves because the why this shows up is because inside of our trauma, when we made those decisions about ourselves, other people, and the world, all of that becomes what stops us in business because we're in the relationship game. <laughs> I, I love it. I've said that. I, I don't know how many times on here. And so I love it when somebody else says it uh, and, and kind of reaffirms it. Cause that's yeah. what I tell folks. Leadership is just another relationship. Totally. It, it, totally. Yeah, so. Absolutely. It see, really see listeners, I didn't just make that up. It's true. 
Yes, it totally <laughs> is true. It really is. And so the skills that are missing inside of us being those great leaders, inside of us really being able to solve problems, which is the only reason we exist in business is to solve problems and um, to give that experience, that person be able to solve their problem and give them an incredible experience. And what stops us from being able to do that is the first thing is those three decisions we made whenever our first trauma happened. Now we have to heal that first. But then once we do that, the skills that those traumas prevented us from having in our lives, we have to learn. So what are those? Like how to free your mind from negative self-talk, be able to really use your mind as a tool instead of it being the master of you. That's a huge superpower I have because I'm not run by my mind. I'm using it as a tool to get from point A to point B as a GPS. It's brilliant as a, as that kind of tool. And it's a terrible master when it's being run by our ego. The third thing is we need to be able to process our emotions. The reason why the trauma stayed a trauma is because you didn't have a model for how to process those feelings. You're, you're, you would have had to have a grandmother who knew how to process her own emotions, right. right? So we have to process our emotions because we have to know how, like when we go out of alignment within ourselves and we feel triggered and so forth, how do we bring ourselves back into alignment? so that we can make effective decisions and keep moving. That's how we stay making a lot of money is when we stay in momentum. The next thing we have to do is we've got to learn how to no longer fear people's judgments or opinions. Now that's right? got to be the hardest one right there for most people to get past, right? It is when you are still thinking you are your trauma, but now because I'm on the other side of it, it's very easy because when people, when people are judging me, it has nothing to do with me because I can actually see their trauma. Right. So yeah. it gives me complete power and freedom going, wow, this is, this is, I can see this is really upsetting to them. Like I can see there right in there lies a trauma for them. So instead of reacting to what they're saying, I just acknowledge. I don't, it doesn't mean agree with them because acknowledgement doesn't equal agreement. Right. It just means I acknowledge that this is what they're experiencing. Right. It. Yeah. And it allows me the power to be able to be with their communication, not make them wrong, stay in my power and bridge where I want to go and get the agreement I want to, you know, in order for it to be a win-win, right? If, if that's a possibility for the win-win for them. Either way, I'm not attached to the outcome with them. As long as I'm in my power, I've done my job. Like that's all I'm holding is to my own integrity. So as long as, you know, so that works tremendously well. Uh, the other thing is having the skill set of how to stay in your power, use your voice, regardless of a disagreement or a difference of opinion. So do you remember inside of that trauma that you just talked about, do you, did you notice that you didn't feel like you had a voice? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Because here she is, she's so upset. She's like, really have it. And it's like, you're like, what, what did I do? You didn't think that you, you had a voice. Well, having that power of being able to connect to your voice and stay in your power and be able to express what you want to say without making the other person wrong 
that gives you tremendous power of being able to be in conversations with differences of opinion and not get taken out, which is awesome. Right. And so when we can do that power and we can do the other power and then we can come from, we can heal any money blocks because people then attach a lot of meaning to making money. I know before, um, when I was doing it through survival, I thought, um, I had to work really hard and like I had to, it was like a badge of honor. And if I struggled, then I would be good enough to deserve the money. Right. right. Only to realize like, seriously, like, um, why would I want to work that hard? Number one. Um, and number two, at the, even if I worked really hard and struggled, nobody cared. Like I never got like a, nobody was rewarding me for struggling so hard. Um, that only happens in the movies, you know, where they reward the, the bat, you know, the heroes for all the struggles and so forth. Like somehow there's a reward there, but it, in real life, it's like, people are like, yeah, whatever. Like they don't, you don't get even, you're not even getting an extra t a time in the spotlight for that. Right. Yep. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> My family didn't, didn't stop eating or break bread of any kind to go, oh, wow, you created all of that and that company and you struggled hard. Let me really acknowledge you. I don't think they ever said that once. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, but it's true, and it's yeah. for, for a lot of reasons, it's it's yeah. very true. And uh, I mean, again, this is a lot of uh, I mean, this is a lot of good info, you know, listeners. I mean, you you probably picked up that I'm not saying a whole lot here because Mia is is on a tear, and and I love it. I'm I'm absorbing every bit of this, and you know, the one thing that I love about what you said, and I hope people really really pick up on. You know, because as, as a coach and mentor myself, you know, I've worked with a lot mm -hmm. of folks and, yeah. uh, you know, especially uh, it seems like this is a, a an affliction that at least women will own up to more than men. But this mm. imposter syndrome, uh, yes. this this I'm never good enough. I've got a great idea, but I'm not going to raise my hand because, you know, as much as I think it's a great idea, everybody else is going to think it's stupid. So I'm just going to be quiet and hold myself back and. Yeah. You know, it's the, these things that you're talking about right here that kind of create that sense of being an imposter when, you know, let's be honest, chances are pretty good that whatever you're feeling that strongly about, you are most likely the best person in the room to be talking about it, or you wouldn't have that deep sense of uh, urgency to speak up, right? Mm, yeah. No, it's so true. Um, I actually get both of, of these men and women just like this, which is really cool, but I do agree with you. I get 80% women and 20% men, right. but I do get men that have that. Um, and I like it, I, it reminds me of that quote, um, you know, and I'm by David, um, I know I might not remember his last name, but he says, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Mm -hmm. And I so really resonate with what you're saying. Um, I totally agree with that. Um, I think that in general, because I've coached both of those and, you know, and I understand the differences between men and women, I would say the biggest differences that I see coaching both of them with the same feelings, right? So I'm going to say like the same feelings, but coaching them. Women on gen in general, the, someone asked me recently on a podcast, why do you think only 2% of female entrepreneurs ever break a million? And I say, because, because of number one, it's their trauma. But number two is because they're taught in society in order to be a good wife or mother, you've got to do everything yourself. So they're not delegators. Mm -hmm. Men, 
in by nature in general, right? right? Because their role is different. They've got more of the pain of like you need to be successful, right? You've got to do it right. You got to like theirs is more like this way in society in the in overall, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and so for them in in general, they're way better delegators. Not all, of course, if they're hiding and pulling back, but in general as to why that number is the way that it is. And men, um, you know, are better at that. Now, that being said, yes, it takes someone really willing to look at themselves. So oftentimes, um, you know, like I get men and when I ask them, you know, like what had the, had you reach out? And, the, and it's always the same. And I know you can relate to this as a coach. What has people finally reach out for support is when the pain of what they're living is greater than the fear of the change. Mm. Yep. That's what makes them reach out. Like, you know, and so I would love to say it's something else, but it isn't. That's really it. At the end of it all, every time I've ever asked them, anybody, women or men, why did you, why are you reaching out now? Like, what is it? They're saying some version of that, what I'm telling you. So when it comes to imposter syndrome, so that's exactly what I mean by in that um, day, that day where we pulled back and separated, too strong of a word, but it's a feeling more than anything. We separated from the truth of who we really are, the wholeness of who we really are. The reason we have imposter syndrome is because even though we don't consciously, because we didn't have a conscious mind back then when we made those decisions, even though we don't consciously remember it, we know that we're not really being our true self. We know, some part of us knows we are in an act of some sort. And so that imposter syndrome is the false self or the ego identity who we became when to survive our life. So that's the reason why everybody feels that way, even if they admit it or not, until yeah. they've healed the trauma and come back into wholeness with who they really are. No, I, I like that a lot, you yeah. know, and it's kind of, uh, I, I chuckled, you know, a couple of things you said there, I kind of chuckled about the delegation thing, because it's kind of a, yeah. a, a, I'll say an argument, it's not really an argument, but that my wife and I have is like, yeah. Uh, you know, so like last year before last, you know, yes. I found somebody to bow the yard. Yes. Well, you're just being lazy. No, I just, no, nope. my time. I've got a lot of time there. I can spend that time doing something better. That's right. And, and then like a year later, she's like, well, you know, I've got to do all this housework. I'm like, well, let's hire a maid. Well, mm-hmm. no, I really enjoy doing it. Okay. Well, but we can hire you a maid. Right. And she's like yeah. so reluctant to, to do that. I'm like, we can free some time up for you too. We did it for me. Let's do it for you. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I can't get her convinced to do that. And, um, you know, yes. other- can you see her trauma? Can you see that her trauma is tied to she doesn't feel good enough or valuable enough unless she's doing it because right. there's something in, right? Can you feel it? And, and, and that's so common. Like every one of my, um, women will feel that way. Like they will come to me struggling. These are entrepreneurs or those that want to be entrepreneurs and they will feel the exact same way. And so we have to first heal their trauma, of course, inside of those decisions. But then here's what I would pose to have them really start to look at. Because here's where, whether they're a man or a woman, they need to really, really look at this. The truth is, 
in order to win at the majors, we've got to minor in, you know, win in the, in minoring at the minor things, right? We've got to be able to look at the small things that become the big. So valuing your time. When you start with the end in mind, how much money you want to make? I'm just going to give you an example right now. Like, let's say if I wanted to make a million dollars, if I back in and reverse engineer that, and I think to myself, okay, how many hours per week times 52 weeks equals how many hours per year? What would be my annual income? So what is every, every hour of my time worth? Mm-hmm. Just as an example, so the, I'm playing for eight figures now. So my right now, my time is worth $9,615.38 an hour. Yep. I will not be doing like the small tasks of things that I could pay someone else to do because my time is so valuable. So I have to live as an eight-figure entrepreneur first before... I become one. Yeah. Right? Yep. I love it. And that's, that's, if if people would spend the time to do the calculations on what their time is really worth and be able to see it from that way. And I don't, I'm not meaning it like, you know, I'm not attached. I'm not putting my worth to my, how much money I make. So I just want to say that it's not that I'm attaching it to how much I'm worth. I'm invaluable. I'm enough without any kind of money attached to it. But when you take it in the business perspective and you look at the decisions of who should I hire out and who should I pay to do this, when I put that into a business perspective and do it by hour, it will make no sense for me to make those decisions. (laughs) Right. I know you know it, but I feel like if people really saw that, they would stop questioning. Like, you know, they would really start to see that our time is our most valuable resource. Exactly. And, you know, and the thing is, and, and you know, this is, we, we uh, I do a lot of talking with entrepreneurs. And so we're talking yes. kind of the entrepreneurial thing here. And yes. so I'm glad you're coming at it from that angle. But the other thing is, is, you know, that thing holds true if your idea of success is, you know, being a great father, being a great mother, being a great brother, sister, whatever it is, you yes. know, the, that time still is, like you said, it's invaluable. You can't put a monetary value on no. time. That's correct. And so, you know, doing that same exercise, and if it's just, hey, I want to free up, you know, another hour to play with my kids, or want to f- free up another hour to be able to watch a movie with my wife, or whatever it is, the same exercise is still just as valuable. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I love it. I would say that that would be right up there on the list of what people ask me for, is how do I be more present? Yeah. And what I love what you're saying right there, because what you're pointing at, which is brilliant, is... um really inside of that space. So most oftentimes people like, um, I'm known as a human potential expert. And so people often say, well, how do you even get your potential? And how, where does that even exist? And they keep thinking it's something out there, but here's really where it is. It's the space between your action or reaction. It's in the expansiveness inside of that space that lies your greatest power to choose whether you respond or react, whether you're present in that moment with your kids, moment by moment, staying present with them, being curious about what they're really into and why, and why do they love that so much, and really being all in on what they're up to, rather than going into a habitual pattern of worry, 
or a habitual pattern of something you can't control, right? Something that's like you haven't done yet, or you're not going to get done today. Like really being able to take your mind and use it as a powerful tool of directing it to be intentional and present. It is the greatest gift, right? Of really valuing your time. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And you know, the thing is, is you also run into a lot of people. I'm sure you've ran into this, right? Where some mm-hmm. people think that point of view is, is selfish. Mm, it's, I love it's really, this. It's really not, right? I love this so much. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is exactly what comes up for people at first. And it's so, I love this so much because we were raised, if you were raised, like my household and um, my mom used to say, you know, cause she heard it from her parents and they heard it from their parents. And this is generational, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody stops to question this, but basically they would say, don't be selfish, right? Don't be, mm-hmm. don't be selfish, but now really feel this. Isn't the very act of them saying, don't do what you want to do. Do what I want you to do. Not selfish. <laughs> So if we can agree that selfish is that we're all hardwired to be, we're naturally hardwired. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. We are all naturally hardwired to think from inside our own filters. That's natural. Every single individual is thinking from inside of their own perspectives, right? That's not wrong. Where, where the, what I know what they really want to say is it's not about not being selfish, but you want to be able to create, even though you understand that you're thinking from inside your own lens, you want to be open to different ideas and um, creating win-wins, right? Where it's not just one-sided relationships, right? So that there is, there's an acknowledgement of the other person and the impact and then choosing win-wins. And that's what they were really aiming for there. But unfortunately, when they're saying, don't be selfish, they're actually in their ego, not actually modeling what it would look like for a win-win situation and for the child to be heard about what they care about. That ego, you know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's such a big thing for such a small yeah. word, right? It is. Yeah. It's, it it's, is. it's probably it the is. biggest stumbling block we've got. It is. I mean, Ryan Holiday wrote a book called, um, it was bestseller, I believe is called the ego is the enemy, but I would totally disagree with him. Um, you know, not in the sense that I understand why he wrote it that way. And it is the ego that takes people out, but I would like to really soften that so much because the ego is not your enemy. It's actually what we created and Mm -hmm. forgot we created it. Now, the cool thing about understanding that and embracing that and accepting that I created an ego is also understanding I don't need to be run by my ego. So the really cool thing is to understand that you're, you're not insecure. Your ego is right. Right. It's really cool to understand that you're never going to enlighten your ego. Like, I mean this with the most love and compassion, but dark doesn't ever have to be light. Mm. It's the contrast, right? So the very thing that um, makes us know who we are is when we know who we're not. And so when we know who our ego is, 
and we know exactly what that identity looks like, like what, what it's afraid of, which is what it shows us in our original trauma, what exactly it fears, all of it, when we can see it, but then not make it in us, but see it as a, as outside of ourselves and be able to look at it. Well, now we can separate from that identity and no longer feel run by it, which is so powerful, but it allows us the contrast. Like consider, we don't know we like chocolate until we know we don't like vanilla. Yeah. Right? right? So if we could make that not wrong to have an ego, but to know that that's what gives us the ability to choose, then what happens is we can choose every day inside of like when something, if something triggers us, we have an, a power, a space that opens up between that action that we could take in responding or the reaction in ego. And we have the ability to then access real power. Mm. I love that. I love that. No, it, it, it's funny the way you 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 frame that because as I was doing uh, I was doing some research for another guest I have coming up. I don't know why I fell into the YouTube death spiral there because yeah. there was a uh, there was a video that popped up and it was titled uh, "Irish People Try Donuts for the First Time." <laughs> okay, but but yeah. it, it's exactly what you just said. There was a guy on there uh, and, and it was Krispy Kreme donuts. And yeah. apparently they just opened the first Krispy Kreme uh, somewhere in Ireland just a couple years ago. So that's why they were doing it. Yeah. But he he made the statement. He took the first bite and he mm -hmm. says, you know, I've never had a donut before in my life, but this is the perfect donut. Mm -hmm. And that was the very first one of their the, the taste test. And they gave him the next one, right? Yeah. yeah. And he took the bite out of it and he goes... Yeah, this has got to be one of the worst donuts I've ever had. Of course, I've only had two donuts. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I mean, though. You're pointing at something so brilliant because that contrast, the very thing that our whole society, we're taught as a society to push against is the very thing that allows us choice. Yeah. You see? Like in a free, we're, we live in this time space reality. We have complete, even inside of um, dogmatic societies, we still have the freedom of choice from what our decisions are about what we choose to think about ourselves. Right. And so inside of that is what I mean is that is actually coming. We wouldn't be able to choose if we all look the same. There was no differences. There was no contrast. Right. We wouldn't be able to like if, you know, if my partner didn't do something that I didn't want, I didn't I wouldn't have an ability to ask him, hey, I would really love it if you could support me and do it this way, because that would really mean a lot to me. I wouldn't have the ability to ask for what I want. Most people don't ask for what they want. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why they don't have what they want, because they don't they've been told never to ask. Right. I mean, my, we, we grew up poor and so just like you. And so when my, my mom took us anywhere, the first thing she said to our four kids is whatever you do, don't ask for anything. Right. We yep. were always told that <laughs> no matter where we go, if we went to a friend's house, don't ask for anything. If you're hungry, don't ask for anything. If you're, you know, don't ask for anything. Like, and so I, these are skills I had to learn. I wasn't, I didn't have the skill to ask. Right. Right. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. definitely. You know, it's it's uh, you know you you you've you shared a lot of great insight uh, with the guest, and and I've I've loved it. I mean, this is 
this is the best one of the best conversations I've had because I didn't have to say much. You 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 hit on all cylinders, just uh, uh, bang bang bang. So I, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate you sharing everything you shared with us. I love it. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. You know, and we're we're sitting right now, right around fifty minutes, and you yeah. know, I know we hit on a lot here, but. Is there anything that you, you know, would really just like the, that you're burning to leave with the guests before we close out? Mm. I think the biggest thing is that this can all be easy. Mm. Like it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. It can be clear and it can be easy. And the biggest question you're going to have to ask yourself is, will you allow it to be that easy? I love it. I love it. It's uh, you, one of the pearls of wisdom that one of my uh, staff sergeants gave me when I first got to Okinawa. He he saw me stressed out one day. I don't even I don't know why I was stressed out that day. Mm-hmm. But he pulled me aside and he said, "Brian, he goes, what's wrong, Devil Dog?" And yeah, I told him whatever it was. Right? He said, "Look, mm-hmm. he goes, you just got to remember three rules in life." He goes, "Don't sweat the small shit. Mm-hmm. Only worry about the big shit." Mm-hmm. And rule number three. It's all small shit. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that was something that just kind of stuck with me because, you know, like you said, so it doesn't good. have to be that difficult. We Humans are amazing creatures at overcomplication, mm-hmm. and they're scared when something's too easy. Oh, I know. Because of that trauma. Yeah. It, like The trauma literally goes, th- because here's why. I, mean, I just want to connect that piece because it's brilliant what you just said right there. The reason is because before the trauma happy happened, they were really happy. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden when that trauma happens, it was, you were blindsided, right? Like here you were happy as a client, you know, going down the street, riding your bike, having a fun time with your friend, coming back, you know, like you happy, happy, happy. And then what? And then bam, right? Like this is everything gets taken away. So now what happened as children, because that happened to us when we had a subconscious mind and a feeling mind, we link that if it get, if it's too easy, if things are going happy, we should be scared. Yeah. Do you, do you see this? Yeah. Because it's like, I don't want that trauma to happen again. So if, if things are going too good, I should be worried, right? Mm-hmm. No, you want to. <laughs> You want to actually let go of the misunderstanding that it was your fault that your grandmother, as much she loved you so much, she didn't know how to process her own emotions, that she projected her own feelings of being not adequate of enough of a mother or grandmother for you that she couldn't find you. Mm -hmm. It was not your fault. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. that. That was great. Awesome. That was great. Well, look, listeners, uh, again, we've spent uh, the past 50 minutes or so speaking with uh, Mia Hewitt, uh, amongst many other accomplishments, author of the book Meant for More. I uh, highly recommend picking up a, a copy and getting some more of the great uh, type of wisdom that she shared with us today. Uh, Mia, on that note, if folks want to find out more about you, what you can do, where to find the book, uh, how to hire you, what, what is a good way for people to connect and reach out to you? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, they can get the book for free. I'll give you, your listeners, a free link. It's only free in this link. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, it's sold everywhere else. So um, it's called MiaMentForMoreBook.com. 
all one word, like www.miamentformorebook.com. And then the password they need to use in order to download it for free is called Freebook, all one word, capital F. So Freebook, all one word, capital F. And they can just get it for free. Um, if they wanted, you you know, you, they can definitely reach out to me personally. I'm the one who answers my own emails. My team doesn't. Mm. So um, I love hearing what the difference it made for you, the book, and what opened up. People share for all around the world how the book changed their life. Um, they can email me personally at Mia at Mia Hewitt and Hewitt is spelled H-E-W-E-T-T.com. So Mia at Mia Hewitt.com. I love it. All right. Yeah. And I will have all that information in the show notes for folks so you can uh, yeah, get there and, and access it easy. No, thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your insight and thank you for, uh, uh, you know, for giving that free link to, to the book. Uh, that That's amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. It has been a, a blessing and a pleasure, and and I've loved I've loved every second of it. I'm kind of sad that this one's kind of coming to an end here, but uh, uh, listeners, again, uh, you know the drill. Uh, make sure that you take advantage of these awesome resources that Mia uh, is providing to you. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, uh, burden.command at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, let me know what you think about the show and make sure you're subscribing, rating and reviewing the show. So, uh, so the guests information like Mia's thoughts can get shared out. That's how those algorithms work. You can help us put those to work in our advantage. And again, with that, it's been an honor. Appreciate spending the last uh, 50 minutes or so with you. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast.